It's cool. God is good. Um, let's get into it. Uh, someone uh, posted recently on my Facebook page this particular slide. It shows that they knew me all too well. A day may come when I stop quoting the Lord of the Rings, but it is not this day. It's right from the, it's so appropriate for me, I think. It's totally appropriate. And I want to show you a scene this morning from Lord of the Rings. But, but just to give you some context, for those of you who don't know the story, what, what J.R. Tolkien does with Lord of the Rings is he portrays the conflict between good and evil in this mythical land called, Mother, uh, called Middle Earth, not Mother Earth, Middle Earth. And after a, a, a great battle in ancient times, the Dark Lord Sauron, kind of the devil, the, the satanic figure of the story, was temporarily defeated, and his most dreaded weapon... The ring of power was lost for a time. Now, a character named Bilbo Baggins finds the ring, and unaware of its true identity, he passes it on to his nephew as an inheritance. Uh, his, his name is Frodo. Frodo Baggins plays the, the central role in the story, and Frodo is an unlikely hero. He's, he's a hobbit. He's of the smallest of peoples, kind of like Sri Lankans are the smallest of peoples here in, in our earth now today. Actually, in, in, in my, my wife is one of the taller of the Sri Lankans from what I, I figure after I've been there. I, 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 sorry, dear. You're, you're actually... But Frodo's an unlikely hero. And so Frodo, full of, of humility and, and hesitation, he embarks on this epic quest to destroy this evil ring of power. And he arrives at the elf sanctuary of Rivendell, and, and the leaders and the warriors are gathered there to decide what to do, and they're, based on their decision, the, the fate of the world rests. Let's watch to see how it unfolds. The ring cannot be destroyed, Gimli, son of Gloin, by any craft that we here possess. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. One of you must do this. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep. The great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. Have you heard nothing Lord Elrond has said? The ring must be destroyed. I suppose you think you're the one to do it. And if we fail, what then? What happens when Sauron takes back what is his? I will be dead before I see the ring in the hands of an elf.
I will take the ring to Mordor. Keep watching. Tough. I love that scene. I, I, uh, I, I move by, uh, you've got Frodo, who's not a warrior, not a hero. He is the smallest. He's the least powerful. He's the humblest of them all. Yet, yet he emerges as, as the greatest because he's willing to do what's got to be done regardless of the sacrifice. And we, and we talked last week about what it is to be a church on a mission. And that God has given us a mission to be love, God's love to our world. We're kind of like God's signpost to the world that our God is a God of love. And we're meant to go out into our world, into our everyday lives, and and share the love and the light of Jesus. But perhaps the most surprising thing about God's mission is this. God often doesn't send the best and the brightest. He often doesn't send the wealthiest and the wisest. He sends the humble and the weak and the small. (laughs) As Scripture says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to, to shame the strong. God chooses those who will humble themselves and who will serve. It's a crazy upside down mission. It's counterintuitive, but it turns out that living as a servant aligns ourselves with the nature again of reality. Because at the center of the universe, again, is, is, is a God of love who serves. We serve a God who serves. And then as we serve, it opens the door to experiencing this profound joy as, as we make a difference for God, both in this life and the next. I want us to look at a passage this morning found in Mark 10 where Jesus actually urges his disciples, kinda, he kind of paints two particular ways they can walk, and he, and he urges them to walk in the way of servanthood. If you, if you have a Bible this morning, we have loaner Bibles at the back if you'd like. Mark 10, uh, 27, 32 to 45. Let's look at that passage. Mark 10, 32 to 45. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? The passage reads, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, Jesus took the twelve aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, a term he used to call himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him. Flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He replied. They said, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. 
Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. So Lord, this morning we pray that as we consider uh, this amazing story of Jesus' interaction with his disciples, Lord, I pray you would be speaking to us again. Make it fresh to our minds, our hearts. Teach us your ways, Lord, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So the the story begins, it says they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Funny you know, um, servanthood doesn't mean we let people walk all over us. Did you know that? I mean, it doesn't mean constantly saying, let's just do whatever you want to do. Jesus is modeling servant leadership here, which begins with a a clear sense of of what we're about, what you're about, a clear sense of mission. And if you're leading anything, if you're leading a small group or a business or a class or, or a family, and you don't have a clear sense of mission, people will take advantage of you. And so Jesus is, is leading the way, and he, and he pulls his, his close followers beside him, and, and he says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed, condemned to death, mocked, and killed. Not exactly a pretty picture of the future for Jesus. Notice the violent words used. Uh, Betray, condemn, hand over, mock, spit, flog, kill. And Jesus says quite clearly these things will happen to him soon. And he invites his disciples to join him. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm wondering if the disciples are thinking, I'm not so sure about the we part, Jesus, after what you've just described. Can Can we opt out of this part of the story, Jesus? But Jesus is perfectly clear. If you want to share in my glory, if you want to share in my, my, my success, if you want to get in on my kingdom and my triumph, then it also means you sharing in my suffering. By the, by the way, this is the third time that Jesus told his disciples that he would go to Jerusalem, suffer, and die. But, but it seems as if for some reason, the, the disciples just don't get it. And I wonder, maybe they don't want to get it. You know, it's kind of like that, that thing that you just don't want to hear about. And here we have a scene immediately after Jesus' third attempt to talk about his impending death, where quite surprisingly, just imagine the segue is Jesus talking about his suffering, and then, and then James and John come up, and they pull him aside, and they say, we want you to do whatever we ask. It's like uh, your teenager asking you to sign a blank check, right? It's just not a good idea. But here again, Jesus responds with a question. He does that often, doesn't he? What do you want me to do for you? By the way, I, I find it quite encouraging by what Jesus doesn't do here. Um, they come and they're going to ask this audacious question. and he, he doesn't say, guys, do you want to rephrase that? He doesn't say, guys, this is a dumb question. 
Uh, he doesn't say, do you know who I am? Do you know who you are? He just simply replies, what do you want me to do? Very graciously. Now, remember, James and John have spent three years with Jesus. They've just heard Jesus say for the third time he's going to be betrayed, killed, tortured. Here's what they propose to Jesus. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. What are they saying? To, to them, that meant when, when you are sitting on your throne, we want to be at the right and left. We, I, I want to be prime minister, and he can be the, the, the chief of staff. We want the, when you reign and when you rule, we want to be, we want to have the best seats in the house, right? Think about, think about how, how audacious that was in the context of what, they, what Jesus had just been talking about. How, how kind of dense and insensitive can you get? It's, it's insensitive to Jesus too, but it's not exactly polite to the other disciples, is it? It's like they're on, they're playing Survivor, and uh, James and John have just voted the other ten disciples off the island, Right? You know, the reality is, folks, is that servanthood, this, this upside-down mission of, of Jesus, is the best way to spend our lives. But it's not easy. It, it goes against the grain of our, our, our very selfishness and our, our selfish ambition. And, and, and it goes against the grain of our culture, where it's all about me. It's true now, it was certainly true then. I mean... That's why Jesus goes on to say, he says, you know that those who, regarded, who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. You know, and their, and their high officials exercise authority over them. They know that. Uh, because a, a person in that day, what, you could pull out a copper coin uh, out of your, your coin stash and, and there would be a picture of, of the Caesar, of Ty, Tiberius or, or Augustus. And there would be a little inscription that they would read there whenever they saw that coin that, that said something like this, he who deserves adoration. That, that, those were the rulers of their day. That's how they were treated by the rulers of those day. They were, they were used to leaders who were all about power and prestige and personal glory. Some of you uh, have grown up in countries where you've seen the abuse of that kind of power. You've seen that firsthand. I, I think of uh, my wife comes from a country where that kind of treatment spawned a civil war that, that tore that country apart for more than 40 years. Um, but let me say this. You don't have to live in a country like, like that to, to know how people use power to get things done, to get their own way. I mean, we see this. We're in the middle of a, a, a federal election right now. Uh, we see how power is used. I like the, the way the message version puts this. He says, you've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, and when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. We see that, right? But let me say this. I believe every time that we reject a lifestyle of servanthood, we're really not so different from those people in power. That's why Jesus radically rejects the path that leads to power and glory. He says, not so among you, my followers, my friends. You're called to a better life. You're called to something different. You, you know, I, I want you to pause for a moment here in the story and, and, and notice something significant here with, with this encounter with Jesus. Something that tells us that, that this drive for power and glory is not like some external thing. It's actually inside our, of our hearts. Notice James and, and John's callous and, and, and self-serving attitude occurs when? 
while they're talking to Jesus. Isn't that kind of crazy? That scares me. I find that a little scary. You know why? I, I, I can talk. I can know Jesus. I can talk with Jesus. I can use Jesus' jargon. I can be busy doing ministry in the church. I, I can do all this stuff. I can listen to a sermon. I can even preach a sermon and still be utterly self-serving, right? Driven by my ambition or my lust or my lust for power or, and, and not by a spirit of servanthood. James and John, closest friends of Jesus, and here they are just not given a, a concern at all about him. They're all concerned about their own agendas, their own glory. So this leads to kind of a core question here is, how do I live as a servant when I really don't always want to be a servant? Even when I'm doing things for God, I, I often want recognition and, and power and status. So, so how in the world can I go against kind of the grain of, of my own selfishness and also against the grain of our selfish culture. Well, here's good news from Scripture. It, uh, it does not start by us saying, I gotta work harder. I gotta do more. I gotta act nicer. You know, I, I, I simply have to, to lean into this. I have to be less selfish. I, I don't know if you're like me, but, but sometimes on a good week, I'll have a moment in my week where I have this little desire in my heart. It's like, I'd like to be a less selfish person. You ever, anybody, anybody ever get that? Sometimes it might even happen on a Sunday morning. And I'm, I'm sitting where you are. I'm listening to somebody else speak. And, I, and, and there's a part of me that, that, that says, it's kind of a simple way of putting it, but it's kind of like saying, I want to be good. You ever have that? Anybody not ever have that? I hope you have that sometimes. I hope you have that desire occasionally. Well, the next step is not to then pursue it with all you got. I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to just, uh, selfless. I'm going to do whatever I can do to be selfless in my life and my work. Because it doesn't work that way. It's impossible. I I took my son last night, uh, and we went and saw the impossible mission, the the most recent uh, impossible mission movie. Mission Impossible, is that what it is? Not the impossible mission. Thank you (laughs) for the correction. Um, so we, uh, we see this film, and, and it's, it's cra- kind of throughout. Uh, I, I just heard this repeated. It seemed like a glimmer came in their eye every once in a while in the film when they said something like this. This task would be, we have till 9 o'clock tonight to basically kidnap this world leader and get them to do what we want. And, and the guy kind of says, but that's impossible. And of course, you know, they're just going to go and do it. And, but he says it kind of with a glimmer like, yeah, it's impossible. We're going to do this. Um, I, I wonder if Jesus said that to his followers. He said, guys, do you know following me, like actually picking up this, this path and walking with me, on your own, it's impossible. It's an impossible mission. It's mission impossible, folks. This, this life of walking with God in and of our own, trying to, trying to conquer these, these drives within us for our own power and our own glory, we can't do it. You know, it's impossible to please God, folks, unless God first serves us. We need to be served by God. That's the gospel. Jesus serves us. You know, we don't need another religious leader telling us what to live and what to do and how to live. We need somebody to free us from our captivity to sin and, 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 and empower us to walk in, in real love. Christian Life is, the Christian life is, is taking Jesus seriously when he says, 
I came to serve you. Jesus put it this way. He said, he said I'm the vine, and you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And this is the key here. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So every time Jesus tells us to do something, love our enemies, uh, forgive those who, who hurt us, um, living a life of purity, sharing the, the good news, sharing the gospel, um, giving generously of our time and our money. When he, ever he asks us to do those things, he's actually asking us to be served by him. It, when you become a Christian, you don't suddenly become God's helper. God becomes your helper. That's how it works. That, that's why becoming a Christian requires this, this deep humility. We've got to admit that we need help, that we need someone to serve us. And, and go, folks, this is something you just never grow out of in your walk with God. If we stop depending on Jesus, it's like we've stopped breathing. Our, our spiritual life just shrinks and suffocates. So Jesus serves us by empowering us, by making servanthood possible. It's a good thing. Well, how else is Jesus serving us? It says in the passage here, by, by paying our ransom, verse 45 says, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, Jesus serves us by paying our ransom. You see, Scripture tells us that this is the most central of truths, that apart from Jesus, we are all hostages, enslaved to the power of sin. And, and that's why we end up in, in addictions and in, in pettiness and poutiness and demandingness and, and selfishness and, and greed and lust. We want more and we get more and it's never enough. We're enslaved to our past. We're, we're dead in our sin. That's the human condition. And it too is not a pretty picture. How does Jesus pay our ransom? Jesus Christ came not to be served but to die to give his life. And that sets him apart from the founder of every other major world religion. Their, their purpose was to live and be an example. Jesus' purpose was to die and to be a sacrifice. By the way, that phrase that, that we read there, to give his life as a ransom for many, actually sums up the reason for why he had to die. Jesus came to be a, a substitutionary sacrifice. Consider the little preposition for in the phrase ransom for many. It, it's the Greek word that means instead of or in place of or substitute for. What about ransom? Uh, when we think of ransom, we think of it in reference to, you know, a kidnapping story, right? In, in biblical terms, it would have re referred to buying the freedom of a slave or a prisoner in order to secure their freedom. That's what ransom would have meant. You're paying someone's ransom. Jesus came to, to pay that kind of ransom for humankind, securing our freedom by, by offering himself in place of, instead of, as, as a substitute for us. Reminds me of, of Lily Potter from, from the Harry Potter books. Um, in, in the first book of the series, uh, the evil Lord Voldemort tries to kill Harry. But, but he can't touch him. And, and when the, the Voldemort-possessed character uh, tries to lay hands on Harry, he experiences this agonizing pain, and, he, and he's repelled, and he's, he's thwarted. 
And Harry would later go to Dumbledore, his mentor, and he he says, why couldn't he touch me? And Dumbledore says this. It's It's actually a profound quote. He says, your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. Wow. Why why is Dumbledore's statement so powerful, so moving? Because I think we know from experience that, that sacrifice is the heart is at the heart of real love. I mean, think about it. Anybody who's ever done anything that has made a difference for us cost them something. A a parent, a teacher, a mentor, a friend, a spouse sacrificed in some way. They they stepped in and accepted some hardship that that we would have got hit with ourselves. I mean, this is what Jesus does. He's our substitutionary sacrifice. It's like a a prisoner exchange only. It's like a criminal, not somebody that, that you think would deem needing rescue. But Jesus offers himself as that perfect sacrifice. I mean, C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe talks about this in, in, in his book, puts it like this. He says, when a willing victim who committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. This is what happened in Jesus. Jesus serves us by paying our ransom. Jesus came and and breaks the bondage of our our sin, wants to set us free from its power and from the penalty of sin. When when, when Jesus died on the cross, he he broke the old way and he offered us freedom. Freedom from our past and and, and from being in bondage to our brokenness and in bondage to our, our selfish ambition. All that. Jesus accomplishes the ultimate mission by, by making the ultimate sacrifice. You'd think Jesus would have won. I mean, if I'd been writing the story, I would have had this epic battle with Jesus on, a, on, a, on a, the biggest horse. And he'd be all armored up. And, it, and his disciples would be going in. They, there'd, be a, there'd be a fight. That's not the way God, in his wisdom, does it. The cross is the genius of our God laying down of our lives that, that, that permanently deals with this power of sin because violence just begets violence. God says there's got to be a better way and he know, knew that there was and it was called laying down his life. Jesus paying the price, the ultimate price, himself giving his life as a ransom for you and for me and for the world. It's a great story. and We'd never write it that way. And you know what? Every, every time that that you and I engage in an act of servanthood, we're participating in that grand story of God freeing people from bondage. Uh, this, this ransom story. So let me say again, before we can serve Jesus, we need to be served by Jesus. We need to keep our eyes on that one story of Jesus. We need to keep our eyes on the cross. Why? Well, Jesus' response to James and, and John in, in verse 38, you have no idea what you're asking, guys. Yeah, I mean, can you, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? In other words, Jesus is saying, don't you realize that my mission runs straight through the cross? It runs straight through the cross. It's not about your comfort. You really want my mission? 
The toughest part of servant leadership is really getting to that place where we actually lay down our lives and, and take seriously some of the other commands of Jesus. Remember what he said uh, in, in Mark 16? He, he says, whoever wants to follow me must pick up their cross and deny themselves and then follow me. We want to follow Jesus and, and forget that he asks us to lay down our very lives. That's what it costs. And what do we get in return? We get our very own life. God fills us with his life. Um, one of my heroes is a woman named Helen Rosen, uh, Rosevere, and she's a medical missionary in, in Africa. And her story is that, that for a time she was a single doctor, the only doctor in a very large hospital. And, and so she's working, she's serving there. There was constant interruptions and shortages, and, and she was becoming increasingly impatient and, and irritable and with everyone around her. And finally, one of the Af- African pastors asked her, insisted, Helen, come, come with me. Please come with me. And uh, this African pastor drove her to his humble home and told her she was going to have a retreat. She was going to spend two days there by herself experiencing silence and, and solitude. Some of you maybe need your pastor to do this very thing. I need to, to, to put you into a car and drive you out to the boonies and, and, and leave you. You need to be left alone for a couple of days to kind of get reorientated. But there Helen was, and, and she was asked by this pastor to pray until her attitude adjusted. All night, the next day, she prayed, she struggled, but her prayers seemed to just kind of bounce off the ceiling. Late Sunday night, she sat beside the pastor around a little campfire, and humbly, almost desperately, she confessed that she was, she was stuck, and, and, and with his bare toe, the pastor drew a long line in the sand, in the dusty ground. He says, that's the problem, Helen. There's too much I in your service. It's too much about you. And he gave her, her this suggestion. He says, I've noticed that, that quite often you take a coffee break and, and you hold the hot coffee in your hand just kind of waiting for it to cool. And then he drew another line across the other one. And he said, Helen, from now on, as the coffee cools, ask God, Lord, cross out the eye and make me more like you. In the dust of that, that, that African ground, Helen learned the master principle of Jesus is that freedom comes through serving him and being served by him. And we, we do that by, by letting go of our, our ego and our pride and our need to be in the center of things. And we lay down our agendas and we say, God, his kingdom first. Seeking his kingdom above all else. Now, you know the genius of this Mark 10 in, encounter? Um, James and John, they, they got it totally wrong here. It's an, it's an embarrassment, actually. If I were them, I wouldn't have wanted this story recorded because they look like idiots, right? They're, Jesus is talking about his death. They, they, you know, they want the glory, and it's, and it's quite clearly not what Jesus was about. But what I love about James and John is eventually they got it right. See, God so broke into their lives that over time they would be the founders of the church and they would go and be world changers, game changers. I mean, we, we know about James. He, 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 was, he died a martyr. We know John was exiled in, in the, the island of Pat, Pat, Patmos, where he uh, wrote the letters to Revelation and so forth. What an impact these guys had. These guys who, 
You had it all sorted out that it was all about us and our glory. And they, they finally figure it out with God's transforming work that it's about him. It's about his glory, what he can do. And, and you know what I would say is I get a sense from them that they had no regrets at the end of their day. They were in on something so much bigger than themselves. So, something so much more meaningful than that. Folks, the idea here on Sundays and as our church experiences life together is that we would come together and gather and we'd get a vision for how good our God is. That God so loved the world that, that he gave his son as a ransom for many. That we'd get a vision of that and we, we would get so enraptured by the beauty of that sacrifice and by the, the love of our God that that would begin to change us. And we'd begin to become servants in our world, wherever God has placed you. We gather to remember that story and we scatter to serve the world. That's our call. I want to ask you this morning, what, what is God doing in your life right now? Where has he planted you where, where he may be asking you to be a servant there? could be in your school classroom, could be in your home, could be in, in, in the workplace that you have or, or in your neighborhood. In what ways is God asking you to set aside your agenda and to, to say yes to, to God's agenda? Um, I, I love that story of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where, where Isaiah gets this fantastic vision of God and he sees God, he sees the glory of God. And what does Isaiah then do? He's been touched by God. He's, he's enraptured by this vision of God. What, is, what does Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. I wonder if God's speaking to you about your life and your reality this morning. Maybe that's, that's a prayer you can pray like Isaiah prayed. Lord, here am I. I'm available. And maybe you, maybe you even think, I don't even know what I have to offer. Well, we covered that a couple of Sundays ago, folks. Five loaves, two fishes, that's all you need. What that means is whatever you have, whatever God has gifted you with, whatever God has equipped you with, that is enough. You don't have to be anything more than you are now. But with what you have, plus God, equals transformation. Are you willing to give what you have? Apparently that's enough to Jesus. He had pretty rough stuff with the disciples. And he changed the world. How might he want to change the world you're living in right now? Taryn, come on up and let's, let's pray. Would, shall we do that? God. Sometimes we feel like, what difference could we make? And then I think of, of the way you've even used us as a church, this this gathering of an eclectic group of people and, and seeing us transform places like Sejay. And, and I go, God, that's only, only because of you. We could never have done that on our own. God, you can, you can take any, any one of us and you can change the world through us. And we want to pray this morning that you would lead us in that journey, that we might come to that place where we learn your ways are about servanthood and humility would you teach us to be servants, God? Would you fill us with your life? You've come, come to serve us. You've, 
You've paid our ransom. We can be freed from our sin and our selfishness. Continue to free us from our sin and our selfishness, God, I pray. Here we are. Send us. Amen.